Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building communities through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Frank Carucci, a lifelong New Yorker. Frank has some fascinating stories to share with us from the last 60 years, including his involvement in the New York City avant-garde theater scene, working with Ellen Stewart and the legendary La Mama Experimental Theater Club, and living next door to the Stonewall Inn at the time of the infamous riots there in 1969. Frank, thanks for joining us today. And good afternoon, Michael. Glad we're doing this. Seems you devoted most of your life to theater. What prompted you to initially major in theater at Long Island University in the early 60s and become an educator with a focus on theater beginning later that decade? It's very interesting. I don't know that I really planned to study theater, but I went to college, and of course my parents wanted me to take something that would lead to a good job. Those are the serious things parents made their kids do. And I took a number of things that were totally unfit for me, and then eventually I just said, you know, I should be in the theater department. That's really what I want to do. And the attitude at home was, well, don't think we're spending a lot of money so you could go and put on shows and play and act. You need to get a job and do something serious. I said, okay, what I'll do, I'll take education courses where I will, you know, possibly lead to being a teacher. But in those days, of course, I was very smug and thinking, well, I'll never be a teacher because I'll I'll become an actor or maybe go to Hollywood and become a screen star or something like that. The, The idea was to complete college use all the credits I had accumulated and get a degree. And I did get a degree in theater and education. After that, I had worked as a speech therapist at the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital and worked with kids who were handicapped and had cleft palates and things. I worked with a wonderful woman, and she said, well, you did so well this year. Would you come back next year? I said, I'm really not sure what I'm doing. I was plans to go to Hollywood. But I also got a teaching license because uh, I'd taken these teaching courses. And she knew that's what I was doing. And she said, did you get your license? I said, yes. She said, you must go see my husband. He has an elementary school, you know, in Brooklyn. I said, well, I'm not sure that that's what I'm going to do. But anyway, I did meet a husband and the school happened to be Uh, about eight blocks from where I lived at the time in Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, with my parents. And I said, this is okay. And at that time, in 1963, you had the choice of serving your country by either going into the military, and at that time meaning going to Vietnam, or serving as a teacher. And I said, hmm, Vietnam or teaching? I said, you know, Uh, Okay, maybe I'll try teaching. And I hadn't taken the full requirements at that point to be a teacher because that wasn't the prime goal at the time. The wonderful thing that was so serendipitous is that my temporary teaching license, by the time I had fulfilled my work at the school, fulfilled the actual uh, teaching requirements. So instead of taking student teaching, I was actually teaching, and I got credit, and I was working, and I had a job, and I had a deferment from the military. So I I taught for the year, and then the second year came around, I had gone to Hollywood, 
but I didn't file for the deferment and say I was coming back to teach again. So I immediately had a draft notice to report to City Hall <laughs> to take my exam. Then I went back and the principal said, you can't do that. We want you here another year. And I got the deferment again and stayed in teaching. Well, lo and behold, I found out I really liked teaching. I was good at it. The kids liked me. I couldn't get them to leave the building, go home for lunch. They wanted to stay and hang out. What were you teaching? It was what we called Common Branches Elementary School. So these were your classes from kindergarten right up to the sixth grade at that time. And I really liked working with the young kids. And I guess teachers really have the most influence in those formative years, especially when you're with a kid all day. You know, when you're in high school, you have a 40-minute slot with the high school kids. But with the younger kids, you're really with them all day long, and, and you really influence them. And as a teacher and eventually working with the teachers' union, I realized it's the passion of the teacher that ignites the passion in the kids. So immediately, it was very interesting. I was the youngest man teacher. There were only two or three other guys, including the assistant principal, who was an old Irish guy who could barely walk around. So I was a bit of a novelty, the man teacher, and I was barely 21 at the time. And uh, so I was a celebrity in that way. But I immediately thought about taking the kids to the museum, taking the kids to Lincoln Center, which had just um, started to open up uh, their new theaters. And I even took them to the uh, 1964 World's Fair. So every kid wanted to be in my class because we were active. You were a fun teacher. Well, it was more than just fun. It was We were really going places and doing things. The parents, of course, would join in because we needed the parent escorts. So teaching turned out surprisingly to be a very rewarding, wonderful thing. And then, of course, in elementary school, every class is required to do an assembly program. And my kids were doing a full-hour assembly program. The other kids were getting up and reading poems and reciting little skits and things. My kids were doing their version of the Nutcracker and their version of Swan Lake and their version of, of, of an opera. I, would, I took them to see La Traviata, and some teachers, my fellow teachers, were scandalized. They said, how are you going to explain that you're taking these kids to see an opera about a courtesan, which, of course, was a prostitute? And I said, well, I'll just call her a party girl because the kids would, would, would understand what that means. I said, yeah, there was this woman in the story, and she's a party girl. Everybody liked her, and she used to have parties and a lot of friends. Anyway, so my kids, by the time they went to see the opera or the ballet, whatever, knew the music, knew the story. And I still meet kids nowadays who come up to me and say, are you Mr. Carucci? You took me to my first theater experience, my first opera, whatever. So, uh, yeah, teaching turned out to be a joy. And before you knew it, a couple of years of that, I became a tenured teacher. I was in the pension fund and everything. So even if I had gotten a role in a Hollywood movie, I don't know that it would have lasted very long. I, I liked it so much. Well, so 
in a moment, I want to take the audience with you on a, on a journey of how you got from there into um, established Manhattan off-Broadway avant-garde theater. Uh, but first, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, for decades, if not centuries, theater has been a home for gay men and women. And what do you think it is about the profession that draws LGBTQ people and why do they find it to be a comfortable place? I don't know that the theater is the exceptional art form that brings and attracts gay men. I think, and I have to be careful how I say this, I think gay men have an enhanced awareness of their environment, of the arts, of their surroundings, architecture, gardens, trees, I think beauty, aesthetic beauty, aesthetics is the word, of course, aesthetic beauty. And I was hedging there saying they have an extra sensitivity. So I don't want it to be called the gay gene that makes gay people more sensitive. But I do think there's more of an awareness, a humanitarian sensitivity. That's why I think um, gay men are also wonderful uh, doctors and nurses and caretakers because they have more patience, more empathy. And that's true, whether it's for theater or for painting. I think gay people are living in this world and they react maybe by writing and doing poetry or sculpting or arranging furniture or doing interior work. There is an extra piece. Doesn't mean that every gay person has this genetic enhancement or that people who aren't gay don't have it. I just think generally that gay people have a little bit more of a flair for creating, for playing, and, and that lends them to being involved in the arts. Any art forms. I think you need a certain disposition to succeed in that. As an aside, uh, one of my prior um, podcast guests, David Nimmons, who'd been head of the Lesbian and Gay Center in New York in the 90s for a while, sure. wrote a book, did some work nationwide on gay male community, but he came up with several things that distinguish us from the rest of the population, particularly straight men. And one of that was an openness to and an ability to hold on to joy longer in life. You know how a lot of straight men, that whole being manly, being masculine, being macho, don't express feelings, you know, they go into accounting or they go into whatever, some dry profession that they're supposed to to make a living. And gay men often, not always, either can't or are unwilling to give that up and, and, and stay in careers that, in fact, bring them joy. And You know, it's very funny you mentioned accounting because that's one of the things I studied in college. I'll study accounting. That's a good, solid profession. And after all, I realized there's no way I want to sit in a room and add up numbers. So there I was taking accounting. I said, that, that, that's not going to work for me. But one of my blessings was I was able to say, I'm going to change. I'm getting out of this. This isn't going to work. And I had made a couple of other changes, as I said earlier, so that I eventually wound up in theater where I was running and jumping and you know, doing all the th crazy things that actors do to warm up and prepare and communicating with people. And so we do take life and respond to it in, in a much more creative way. So 
There you were teaching with a lot of theater in the 60s. I know that around the time of the Stonewall riots in the late 60s, you met Ellen Stewart, the founder and artistic director of La Mama Experimental Theater Club in the East Village, which is the center of off-Broadway and avant-garde theater in Manhattan, for those who don't know. And she gradually opened La Mama's facilities to you and the student programs you oversaw, as I understand it. Today, you're president of La Mama. How did that meeting come about? What do you think led to the two of you becoming so close? Well, becoming your my college professor, my theater director at Long Island University, took the drama class to an off-Broadway show at this new place that was opening called La Mama. And there was this woman, Ellen Stewart, who was running the place. We were going to go see a show there. That was another stimulating exposure for me going to La Mama and seeing something very, very different from what I've seen on Broadway. And of course, in those days, anybody who was in the arts was coming to La Mama because it was hot and trendy. And there was always this surprise element. There was the ridiculous theater. There was Charles new- Ludlam. Charles Ludlam. Charles Ludlam for a while. And then John Vaccaro. There was the ridiculous theater company and you know, another, uh, multiple ridiculous things going on. But it was all fun and experimentation and trying things that nobody else would let you try. And, you know, the old cycle, you couldn't get into a Broadway show unless you were in the equity, uh, Actors' Equity Union, and you couldn't get into the union unless you had a job. So La Mama Ellen opened as a place for new people to go, try, do things, and then eventually populated the entire Broadway community. So anyway, we went there. We uh, we had a wonderful experience. And then I started going back on my own. I didn't need my teacher to take me there. And hung out. And Ellen, of course, knew I um, liked being there and, and everything. We became friendly and everything, but not in a formal way until I said, I think I want to do something here with my kids. And eventually I did a show there that came out of Fort Hamilton High School where I had worked after I left elementary school. And after my first show there, she said, baby, now you are resident director at La Mama. And I said, I'm a resident director. And that meant being in the company of John Vaccaro and Sam Shepard and Paul Foster and, and so many people like that. So again, it just enhanced my life with excitement, everything. But that was the place that Salvador Dali went to, Andy Warhol went to. So I had an affinity there. Ellen and I understood it. But I was still a teacher first. I didn't ever work at La Mama until I did a show, and I've done a number of shows there. How did you ultimately advance to becoming president of the Well, now we're fast-forwarding years later. There was a changeover at the board at La Mama at the time. And Ellen said to me, I've got to get a whole new board. And Ellen was the type of person who would say, the only reason I have a board is because the charter says I must have a board. But nobody was going in there and telling Ellen Stewart what to do because she did what she believed she's in. She's a grand dame of theater. Well, she's a grand dame, and she believed in cultural exchange and multiculturalism before it was hot and trendy. And she didn't want people telling her what to do. But anyway, she said, baby, I want you to you know, be on my board. I said, fine. Of course, I'll be on your board. 
And I, I think it was a very good collaboration. Remember, what, 20 years ago or so? It was in 95. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very, very funny. Um, my career and involvement with La Mama very much paralleled my career in teaching and with the United Federation of Teachers, where I was also a vice president after I had gone to the high schools. And those two institutions are the same age, and I was an officer in both from 95 on till you know till now and you continued to bring while you were teaching your student groups in yeah and afterward after i got to high school i created a whole theater department at fort hamilton high school i was the director i taught directing we put on show after show and it was one of those shows that we did at fort hamilton high school that was a world premiere of an of a new play called The Coolest Cat in Town, which I described as a combination of Bye Bye Birdie, um, the Rocky Horror Show, and, um, well, you know, something like Glee or uh, Grease. Grease. So it it was a a surefire attraction for the kids, a lot of fun and everything. And we did that at La Mama, and then eventually actually went into contract at City Center. So uh, I think that's a Guinness world book uh, statistic, the first play that went from high school to community theater to Lincoln Center Outdoor Festival and then to City Center. Wow. So that was a fun piece. So I want to switch gears a little bit and bring us back to the late 60s when you were teaching maybe at that point in high school or not. I had switched from elementary school to high school in 68. Okay. And you had moved into an apartment in the village around that time. That's right. And you have a really interesting experience in having been there at the Stonewall Riots, which we recently celebrated for the 50th anniversary. But I'd like you to share with our audience what happened to you around that time. Well, the um, building I lived in was beautiful old pre-war apartment building, very desirable. And I lucked out serendipitously when I went to the um, real estate office, looked for an apartment. And I remember it distinctly because it was the day... Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. was was assassinated, and everybody was kind of gloomy at the office and said, oh, this is what happened. We were all devastated. But that was the day I signed the lease. So that was in 68, and, you know, I lived there almost a year when the riots happened. What was the street number of your building? 45 Christopher Street. And Stonewall was? Right adjacent to the building. So here's this big apartment building right next door, Stonewall Bar. Now, it's 12 o'clock maybe, late at night. I'm hearing this commotion look out of the window, and it appears like Times Square on New Year's Eve. This thing was going on. And I was with a friend of mine who has since passed away, and, you know, what the hell is going on? Let's figure it out. Now, we were in a very advantageous position because we were in this building and went down to the lobby and could see out. They had the place separated and cordoned off with these wooden barricades so people couldn't get close to the stone wall, or they tried to at least keep people away from the stone wall and from my building. But we realized what was happening. They were raiding the bar, and there was a paddy wagon, sort of catty corner backed up almost into my lobby of the building. Now, people couldn't come in, but we were already in and seeing this. 
and we saw them bringing the guys out, bringing, putting them in the front of the paddy wagon. From the bar. From the bar, going in the front. We were in the building, and I said, let's see. That back door looks open. It wasn't closed. It, it looked like it was ajar. So we got a sense of the timing here. They would go in and talk to people and wave the batons around and everything. And uh, we went out, and we the plan was to open the back door, hustle the guys out the back door into the lobby of the building, yep. my building, down into the basement, which had a long corridor, to another exit, to a back exit, which is what we did. So we went out, and we opened the doors. Come here, come here, come here, come here. And these guys came running out. Some of them were drag queens. And they came into the lobby, went down the stairs, and uh, I went down and then showed them where to go, and they were able to get out. And by then, of course, the police realized what was happening, and they came and they slammed the door. They didn't try to come into the building and chase us or anything because we weren't actually standing there. We were trying to keep out of sight. So so basically, it's like a Keystone Cops. It really looked like the Keystone Cops. I said, how many guys could go in? Because then it looked funny. I said, they're still trying to put them in until they realized so you were they were out. going out the back door. How many people do you think you rescued that way? I would say there had to be 10 or 12 guys at least. You know, the, um, there's a lot of debate about the composition of the crowd out in front of Stonewall and at the bar. Initially, everyone assumed it was all gay white men. And over time, there's been an acknowledgement and, and an awareness that there were a lot of people of color and a lot of trans. What was the bar crowd like, that you, if you remember it, and the well, people being arrested? The crowd was not like it is today, where people go out, they want to be noticed. They want to make a, a statement. They'll dress outrageously or fun-wise to get attention. Uh, they're going to parties. They're not concealing anything. In those days, it was different. It was just the opposite. You didn't want to call attention to yourself. You didn't want to be noticed. You didn't walk down the street holding anybody's hand and letting people know that, that you were queer. You would never do that. So, yeah, they pulled some guys out who were in the bar makeup, but those guys did not walk to the bar in makeup and high heels and everything. They had to have their costumes under their coats, and when they got there, put on a wig or put on their makeup. Otherwise, so, they would have been arrested. Well, they certainly would have been harassed or whatever. And if they could have walked down Christopher and Sheridan Square, they might have been okay, but they wouldn't dare walk around the corner down the dark street because you didn't know what was going to be waiting for you at that point. You know, it's not like Pose, you know, the TV show where you have all these schools of drag queens and, and, and clubs and everything. Uh, there were secret places that people went. More subterranean. Well, it was all subterranean. There was no openly gay bar. A lot of gay people lived in the village, as you said earlier. A lot of artistic types. There goes our gay sensitivity thing coming out. So, yeah, that's what went on. But it wasn't a big flagrant thing. But I think the thing that that triggered the whole thing, there was this feeling at the time that everybody was tired, depressed. Judy Garland had just died and was buried. Um, that day. 
that day or the, I don't remember the day before, but people were depressed. They were at the end of their line and they just weren't having it anymore. So I had another interview. So what do you think happened? I said, somebody just probably pushed somebody, policeman shoved somebody and somebody just said, you know, I'm going to push back. And once that happened, other people started to push back. So you have to remember the, the, the riots weren't a one-night event. Next day, everybody knew in every place that gay people gathered, it was not going to be the same. Because the word was out, we're fighting back, we're pushing back. And I think that's what happened. It just grew. And now, of course, we have these worldwide events where people celebrate the action that those people took those first months. Was that momentum, was that growing appetite to fight back, that, was that apparent over the course of those three or four days? Absolutely. It, it was apparent the second night, as I said. After the first night, the next night, wherever the bar was, the police couldn't go in and get away with what they were doing previously, raiding people and, and threatening people and shoving people around because everybody was now in a militant mood. And as I said, they, they were tired. They were depressed. Judy Garland's dying was a very depressing thing in the community. However, you know, for whatever reason, she became so iconic, but it, it was key. And that wasn't the only reason, of course. It just happened. And once the rebellion started, it was very good. Was it really that black and white, let's say a week or two or a month later? Did it feel that different? Yes, because I think the authorities knew they couldn't go in and do that. Of course, you know, the things calmed down for a while and they raided the bookshops and some of the bars. Uh, but everything in those days was hidden. So if there was a gay bookshop, it didn't say gay bookshop. It hinted at sexual materials and pornography. The Oscar Wilde bookshop. Yeah, well, was, uh, that wasn't um, a porno shop. Sure, sure. That was a uh, high literature. But, you know, the, the Times Square stores and other places like that, they had a lot of girly stuff, but then there was always a section on the side or in the back where the boy stuff was. But then, you know, over, over years, everything became more visible and everything came out of the closet. And then we're saying, this is a gay men's bookshop. So, you know, what was it like living in the village in the 60s? What was it like for you living in the village in the 60s and 70s? Just kind of give us a picture of that. Well, first of all, I was very lucky because I, I looked at a number of apartments. And as I said, I lucked out mm -hmm. and got a beautiful studio at a rent-controlled price in this beautiful building. And I had a wonderful home. And the village was, was a fun place with interesting people. But it wasn't outrageous. But you didn't have the privilege of being outward and obvious in any way. And I don't know that people were disappointed, but they didn't have it. So it's not like it was taken it away. But once they got a taste of it and they did come out, they wanted to do more and more. So what was secret and closed and clandestine became part of what, people wanted to see happen 
And people fought actively to do that and have gay restaurants and gay bookstores and gay bars. And some of them had different connotations. There was the hint of potential sexual activity in different places. But there was a lot of that also in the straight community. Wasn't the village itself bohemian, whether it was gay or straight? It was called bohemian. But that's because they were interesting characters. There was Rollerina, I remember. He's, he'd go skating down the street. Fairy costume. And other people who were village characters. They weren't necessarily... I mean, people said, well, what's that queer doing on the roller skates? But that wasn't the point. It was part of the village. And when I was a kid in high school, I would go to the village at night just to walk around, see what was going on. If I was lucky, somebody invited me to go home with them. And that was you know, a whole adventurous part of my life that I didn't even know uh, would happen. So um, the, the, going to the village... It wasn't like an open stage the way it is now, because, you know, now you have the Halloween parade, you have the Pride Parade, and you have demonstrations, but it wasn't open. So when people lament what's missing, it might be a kind of sublime, quiet, safe place. You wouldn't dare do the outrageous stuff in those days. If you did, you were going to pay the consequences. Well... You've had a long and illustrious career, and I'm sure there's a lot more to come. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Frank. Yeah, this is really very, very fun, and it makes me think about all those great times. And, yeah, let's do another couple of hours. Okay. I love the reminiscing. All right. Thank, thank you. you, Michael. Bye-bye. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co. 